0: For October 15th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 224. He has two levers. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, where we did not have a Comic-Con this weekend, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with a panel to overthink uh, so many things. We have have a big, uh, packed show. We are going to overthink... User Interfaces and User Interaction Design in Science Fiction. And we have Chris Nossel, uh, the author of Make It So, a book about interaction design lessons from science fiction. Co author, co author, -author, excuse me, Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to be a guest on the show. Um, And we're also going to talk a little bit about New York Comic Con uh, and get a live report from our own Mark Lee, who attended Comic Con this weekend. New York Comic Con. With uh, Matt Belinky, with Overthinker Matt Belinky, So that's That's great. But before we get into that and before we get to the question of the week, I just want to point out that we are brought to you this week by a sponsor. (laughs) What? Sponsorship. And it's not even Terminator 6. (laughs) Uh, We are brought to you by John Parrish's, Overthinker John Parrish, uh, his latest novel, Too Hard to Handle. Uh, The latest installment in his series of Boston-based thrillers that are thrilling indeed and that you can uh, download on the Amazon Kindle. So uh, if you want to go get a copy of Too Hard to Handle by John, uh, may I suggest humbly, respectfully, that you go through the affiliate link on Overthinking It, which you'll find in the sidebar on every page, so that we get a, a, a little kickback. We know you have a choice of affiliate links when you click through any website to uh, support them with your consumerism on Amazon.com, and we really appreciate it when you go through Overthinking It. We would really love it if you got, uh, got John's book, which is... Uh, I, well, I, I should say I haven't read it. I don't know if anyone on the panel has, but I'm hoping it's as awesome and as uh, no, I, I read, great. I read Too close
1: to miss. Too close to miss is awesome. Yeah, I yeah. Well,
0: what I was going to say is I hope it's as uh thrilling as Too Close to Miss was. Great. Well, panel, in honor of our guest who is who is going to talk about um user interaction design in science fiction and the kind of the user interfaces. Uh kind of a little discussed aspect of the technology that's present in science fiction, how people actually use the machine and how that reflects understanding uh, of machines at the time and kind of the dominant technological paradigm. Um, Give an example of your favorite uh, user interface design from, uh, from a science fiction property. This is a tough one. This is an awfully, uh, awfully specific question, you know? Uh, so uh, drink, because he's first in the alphabet. It's Pete Fenson.
1: <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I don't want I rarely miss an opportunity to talk about time tracks. But this time I'm going to skip it for a similar uh, example, which is that I'm going to I'm gonna have to cite Orlando Jones as Vox – in uh, the Guy Pierce version of the time machine with Jeremy Irons which came out in 2002 uh, uh, Orlando Jones plays the uh, computer voice that i believe resides from at least part of the movie at the New York public library like into the distant future and uh, because he is a rather timeless computer is able to communicate with Guy Pierce at several times during his like hundreds of thousands of years journey through time and i think the way in which he's able to recognize who Guy Pierce is recognize what's gone on despite the hugely immense uh, length of time and sort of accommodate how he deals with Guy Pierce's requests like despite the fact that he has many other subroutines that are going i think i think that's really an outstanding user interface if you get Orlando Jones to be the voice of your computer and his little hologram like Tupac hologram style self to be your computer's interface, and he lasts for hundreds of thousands of years. I, I feel like somebody should get some sort of award for user interface for that quality of work. <laughs>
0: Plus,
1: Excellent. he'll actually teach you, he'll teach you how to play the drums, too. Right. Uh, and, and he'll do sketch comedy of, like, a solid, solid variety. <laughs> um, not, not, not leading brand, but solid variety.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Mark Lee, user interface. Uh, Pete, uh, I am shocked. Shocked. That um, when the topic of user interfaces in science fiction has come up, you did not mention the movie RoboCop. I'm <laughs> shocked. So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to cite RoboCop as my favorite example of user interface in science fiction. In particular, the moment where RoboCop, in, you know, in his quest for information and he wants to tap into the computer system, uh, he makes a spike. Like a big sharp metal spike come out of his hand, which he then proceeds to thrust into a data port on the mainframe. He then twists and then he accesses information, which um, which he uses to figure out what his actual identity is. And the reason why I like this so much is, uh, well, a because it's just freaking ridiculous, uh, but b because it just reminds us of this uh, this time before this you know age of Siri and Google, uh, where it. it like accessing data was hard, or technology was threatening. Where it was this thing where you actually felt like you, it would be helpful to have a big metal spike to sort of thrust past barriers, so you would actually get the information you needed. That's well, well, what I liked about the Robocop status spike.
1: Well, Ro- RoboCop the series had a, had a gr- another great. Uh, if you ever watched RoboCop the series in 1994, 1995, wait, wait, had
2: another. Wait, wait, wait. Do you mean like TV series?
1: Yeah, there was an hour long TV show of RoboCop that was syndicated. It was great. I loved it. It was. Uh, it, it, it was made – I'll quote the Wikipedia page by saying it was made to appeal primarily to children and young teenagers, <laughs> of which I happened to be one at the time, and it lacked the graphic violence that was the hallmark of RoboCop and RoboCop 2, which is <laughs> also true. But yeah, no, it was just – it had a uh, – there was a computer that had a com- – it was very fashionable at the time to put computer holograms as computer interfaces uh, in, in, your, in your materials, even though this is ten years before Orlando Jones would, would break ground or eight years or so. RoboCop, the series, had a gorgeous – computer as I recall, and I can't remember who it was and I'm like trying to figure out who it was but the, I remember having a crush when I was like 15 on the computer from Robocop the series um, I think it was, Sa- was it Sarah Campbell maybe I'm not sure um, but anyway uh, yeah so and he did put the spike into a lot of stuff in that show so I guess it wasn't entirely child appropriate <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would like to uh, for my entry I would like to draw your attention to a uh, 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 what a, a much maligned classic, oft imitated, never duplicated. No, it's not even. It hasn't really been Im- imitated, but um, it's a little movie called Captain EO. <laughs> oh.
1: a, a little movie, but a, a, a large movie. A movie that has large footsteps uh, that leaves behind.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Directed by uh, directed by one Francis Ford
2: Coppola. If I'm not <laughs> mistaken. <it.
0: laughs> Yep. Uh, starring,
2: starring Michael Jackson, of course. Starring yeah. King yes. of Pop
0: Michael Jackson, as well as um, Angelica Houston as the yeah. Supreme Leader, who they find without a map. right? Yeah. Uh, and y- you will remember that there is an early episode of the Overthinking Podcast called How Are We Going to, uh, to Find a Supreme Leader Without a Map, uh, I believe, about Captain EO. And this, is, this, um, this user interface is the robot keyboard that... Uh, that is it, because it's adaptive i think is really the thing and like there's this big you know talk about adaptive web design or responsive web design this is a computer this is a uh, well a robot this is a uh, you know a machine that responds to context by at certain points being a robot and you know robotting around and at certain points becoming an awesome multi-layered uh you know rock and roll keyboard rig um
1: Oh, so you mean like a guitar kind of keyboard?
0: Well, yeah, but it's not. You don't pick it up. I think it actually is like an auto-playing. You know, it's like uh, in the <laughs> So guitar- it's a
1: music. It's a musical instrument, is what you're saying. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. it it has a musical instrument interface, and then it also has a like walking or rolling around kind of anthropomorphic, uh, you know, Android interface. Um, as well. Yeah, I
1: remember this guy. Yeah, he like, he rolls around and he sort of squats, right? Or something like that. <laughs> he
0: pops a squat yeah. and changes the world. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, and uh, no, um, no accident that the song in the film is called We Are Here to Change the World. Uh, Yes. Uh, So Captain EO. So uh, I don't know if if any of those will come up in our conversation with Chris Nossel, but uh, we'll be right back and we'll be talking with Chris Nossel, the author of Make It So Interaction Design Lessons from Sci-Fi. See you in a second. So we are here with Chris Nossel, uh, who is a co-author of Make It So, Interaction Design Lessons from Sci-Fi, uh, with a co-author. And Chris, I just asked your co-author's name, but I've forgotten about it in the 30 seconds since we said it. So <laughs> it's uh, Chris Nossel and Nathan Shedroff, Nathan Shedroff who are the yeah. uh, dynamic duo behind Make It So. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for me. Uh, glad to be on. We're very uh, we're very glad to um, to have you. So tell us tell us a little bit uh, about your book, uh, which is its own i its own kind of brand of overthinking.
3: <laughs> yeah, actually, it, it's, the entire thing is predicated on the fact that uh, Nathan and I have overthought sci fi for the past six years. Um, the the book is an examination of. Uh, the past hundred plus years of science fiction interfaces. So that means in like movies and television. Um, and then we've not only sort of analyzed them, but then uh, sort of uh, drew lessons from them as far as what interaction designers could use sci-fi for in their daily work.
0: And I understand that that you're both you're both UI designers, right? Uh, I currently
3: and Nathan in a past life. Um, wow. We're both in the Bay Area, so we have like you know lots of Silicon Valley experience. Um, and uh, Nathan used to work for a studio called Vivid um, and uh, is now he teaches at the California Academy of the Arts. Um, and I work for an interaction design company called Cooper, so I still do it on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's sort of where our background is, and um, it was a natural way to sort of uh, uh, make something useful out of our overthinking.
0: Can you say something <laughs> about uh, interaction? interaction design, especially to kind of distinguish it from the other aspects of design that that kind of go into designing industrial products or websites or, you know, other technological artifacts? What is interaction design uh, specifically?
3: Well, if you think about it, uh, industrial design is sort of the shape of a thing um, and a little bit about how you might use it physically. Uh, and visual design would be sort of what does a thing look like? Interaction design is really how do you use it? Um, if you've ever gotten frustrated from sort of a blinking uh, VCR clock, uh, that's the fault of the interaction designers. They're not making it easy to predict how to use it, not easy to make it uh, you know, easy to understand how to control it, and then easy to understand, oh, hey, I've gotten done what I need to get done
2: hmm.
0: Like set it like uh, stopping the, the 12 o'clock from blinking on the yeah um, on and off and on. That is an interaction designers failure. No one uh, no one really uses I guess has a VCR anymore and everything now sets its sets its time from a, a time server somewhere on the Internet. Right.
3: Yeah, and that actually would be a, a great overthinking at ARC because as sort of agentive technology begins to take over, will interaction designers be around for much longer? I don't know the answer to that question.
0: Well, I, no, I mean, I think you, I think you have to. By, by agentive technology, you mean technology that sort of makes decisions on your behalf?
3: Exactly, exactly. That has an agent there that sort of gets you what you need before you know you need it mm-hmm. or, does, or does things for you like set your clock.
1: I thought for a second that you said Asian technology, and I guess that's just as much of a threat to contemporary uh, designers of this sort, but in a different of a different nature oh, i also wow. I also was thinking, man, you know the the worst uh, the worst design of this sort has got to be quantum leap, right? <laughs> like you don't know how it works. You don't know what you have to do. It's some sort of like vague moral imperative that you have to satisfy, and you, you have this like all these sort of false things you have access to, right? Like Ziggy and Al, which are totally useless. Yeah, um, I guess they're useful, but
3: they're but sort yeah. of useful in answering questions of a narrative purpose. But it is pretty much a giant like die that you roll at the beginning of every show.
1: Yeah, so you're never like, I think this machine should work when uh, I'm morally satisfied with the events that precede its operation. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly, exactly,
0: exactly. Whereas the, the, the holographic computer and gem in the holograms is a, is a great interaction design because all you do is you grab your star-shaped earrings and you say synergy, <laughs> you know, you say, well, you say what you want and it magically appears in front of you, you know?
3: <laughs> maybe a little too easy, but that is an example that's not in the book. That oh, we're going to get into the sequel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, that. Chris, maybe you can give us an example that uh, is in the book of forward thinking. Um, interaction design that uh, has influenced us in the real world outside of the science fiction realm.
0: Well, that's influenced us in the real world, but I mean, it seems to me that the kind of limiting factor is the kind of dominant technological paradigm of the time. Like, a lot has been made uh, uh, about Star Wars being a kind of pre-digital version of the future where everything is like levers and actual mechanical buttons and things like this, Uh, whereas like Star Trek The Next Generation is maybe more of a digital version uh, of the future, though, though not not throughout there's still plenty of like heavy switches being thrown in star trek the next generation but uh, is there just to kind of uh, refine mark's question a little bit like is there an instance of someone like really breaking the mold that that sticks out to you as being kind of interesting
3: wait you mean like really forward looking yeah or being being something
0: yeah something that does not really come out of the dominant paradigm technological paradigm of the time
3: well, I mean, it's actually a challenging question and possibly even a trick question. I applaud you. Um, but, I, but I actually don't think that sci-fi can really uh, afford to break the paradigm too much. Otherwise, the narrative gets lost in sort of explaining what it is that this technology does as opposed to, you know, does the guy get the girl? Do the aliens get shot with the laser? Um, uh, you don't want to spend 30 minutes understanding, well, well, you know, in this circuit, this happens and this rules. So. Given the fact that you can only sort of uh, convey the rule that's implied by a technology over a couple of lines of dialogue, right. um, you have to be really careful about how far out you look. That said, um, there are a couple of things, that, uh, examples that come really to mind. Um, one of the earliest ones was um, in Metropolis. Are you guys familiar with the 1927 film by Fritz Lang? Sure really old one, you'll remember that uh, Joe Freiderson is sort of that uh, top dog in the upper city. Um, and there's a scene where he wants to talk to uh, Grot in the lower city. And to do so, he walks up to what is the equivalent of a 1927 video phone. It's gigantic, it's mounted to the wall, um, and he actually uses it to not only sort of check voice messages, um, but then... Uh, makes a telephone call, video call down to Groton, the Lower City. They have a brief chat. Uh, he gives him this dire instruction, and then ends up shutting down the shutting down the video system. Um, it is both very forward looking because the paradigms at the time were strictly like telegraph. Um, a few televisions existed at the time, but they were postage stamp sized thing that were on displays in London. Um, so film was the dominant sort of visual paradigm of the time. And of course radio had been around. So these are the sort of three paradigms that they were trying to cram together into this one sort of delightfully antiquated interface, mm-hmm. um, to check messages. He walks up and picks up this ticker tape and he's sort of scrolling through the ticker tape. Um, and then, To make the video call, he dials it in like it's a radio call. So you see these giant dials that he's sort of trying to get the right number. And then once he's got that right and it's sort of tuned in, then he starts sort of uh, fiddling with this button in order to flash a light in the lower cities to get Grotts' attention. So it's both very forward-looking because this technology was nowhere near existing. um, And yet sort of antiquated because it was this mismatch of technologies and paradigms. Um, But, you know, ultimately worked for the film. and audiences were blown away then and uh when we sometimes show this on stage audiences are still blown away by oh wow check that out
0: is it i mean can you draw a a line i mean this is the thing i'm kind of giving away my interest this is the thing i'm kind of interested in but like can you draw a line between a like a mechanical and a digital version of what what future technology sci-fi technology uh will look like uh, I'm not following the question. Oh, sorry. Uh, is there, is there a point at which, uh, is, is there a, like a, 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 seminal show where the paradigm shifted from, uh, from a, a pre-digital from like a mechanical to, uh, uh, a, a digital version of the, of the future? I mean, can you point to one film or one television show or something like that?
3: Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, the, the the biggest television show that has the highest vestment in sort of sci-fi reality or technological reality was Star Trek. Yeah. Um, other than Faster Than Light Travel and of course The Teleporter, which was a simple narrative means to get people to the planet uh, quickly. Um, we see it both in its 1968 incarnations with all the sort of lovely little gem tone buttons and dials and mechanicals to um, the next generation with its absolutely sort of flat panel interfaces and even to sort of the modern incarnations uh, in the reboot of the movies where it's sort of invoking uh, volumetric projections or holograms um, and like, you know, uh, power everywhere and interfaces everywhere. Um, that single property is trying to create, you know, one world but stretched out over 40 years. Um, that's probably the seminal one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure.
1: I, you know what? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to go send us down a rabbit hole here, but I'm curious. Um, y- as an, as an interaction designer and someone who thinks about interaction design in sci-fi, I know I joked about Quantum Leap, but the worst interaction design in sci-fi has probably got to be the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers – because <laughs> right? think about it from like So you got Zordon right And he's in the time warp right And and Zordon decides that the way he's going to run his Mighty Morphin Power Rangers operation and this whole Interface thing is that Alpha 5 is going to have The secret layer, right where, where Alpha 5 is ma- maintaining the machines That allow him to communicate with Zordon and with All the Power Rangers who each have Individual power coins that require special Incantations and dances right To summon the lions which are hidden In various places around the world and like Convene right but then later they can be transported into a giant person like like how do you streamline the user experience of a megazord (laughs) Uh, because it just it just seems needlessly complicated uh and and i don't know whether that hurts the usability or or what i'd imagine it probably would be
3: Well, I think it certainly begs the question about what was his motivation. He might have been behind the scenes completely financially uh, sort of motivated to keep it that complicated, right? Like what was in it for him? Who – and this is the question behind like a lot of interfaces. But where was the money? Where was the deep throat in this situation?
1: (laughs) So basically you're saying that like Zordon and Rita Repulsa – have been in in a sort of like cold war situation where their like respective military industrial complexes are compelling them to come up with these Rube Goldberg monster robot battles in order yes. to like pay pay the shareholders of Z- of Zordon's enterprises uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. It certainly would make sense why they would use teenagers, because you know, as soon as they get too experienced, they're going to start demanding pay raises and benefits and pensions, and then you have to shelve them off in order to keep your costs down. And get somebody <laughs> else in there.
3: <laughs> but I can actually, I can actually imagine a less sort of Rube Goldberg machine. But there are worse interfaces that I can imagine in sci-fi. Do you, do you guys uh, remember Total Recall? The original of one? Oh, yes, yeah, yes. Definitely. yes. So there's this great scene at the sort of very end where uh, John—I don't remember the Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, full character name—but uh, where he's sort of discovered this machine, um, and uh, the, the bad guy sort of blows uh, blows a hole in, and the sort of air is getting sucked out, and uh, Schwarzenegger puts his hand down uh, on the machine, and suddenly a terraforming begins to take place, <laughs> and there's <laughs> and it's
2: and you, uh, like you mean you mean he gives the people air. <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly. You may not describe it as a terraforming does not even yeah, well, post doing justice.
3: Gives the people right. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is like, it's one click terraforming. It's like it's like it's like amazon.com had gotten a hold of the design and not asked anyone are you sure? Like <laughs> and this is separated by a millennium so they're not quite sure that they're, you know, oxygen and nitrogen breathing people on the planet. But, you know, if you put your hand on that button, uh, it's going to go forward from there forward. Yeah, and it's pretty like monstrous. It actually sort of ends up destroying the surface of the planet. Uh, but through one click, one click
1: so, so what do you think about voice uh, recognition? Because that's a huge interface in sci-fi, right? Like, is there a reason why we don't do I – mean, what do you think about Siri, right? Like, as, as respective to sort of the computers on Star Trek, as, as someone who deals with interaction design, are there limitations to voice activation technology and, and voice interfaces that we should be cognizant of? Or should we get really excited about this as a future way of interfacing with technology?
3: Uh, I think uh, both. I mean, actually, sonic interfaces go all the way back to the beginning. We were talking about Metropolis um, and the Maria in that film uh, is a, a robot. Yeah, she's a cyborg or whatever, but um, she is voice controlled. That's the way Joe tells her, you know, go down and seduce people in the lower levels and uh, ruin their uh, ruin their uprising before it happens. Um, so it's been with us forever. And it makes sense, right? Like, we're people. We talk to other people. It's a natural way for us to interact. Um, I think the, uh, there are limitations that we're going to be stuck with for a while because – Language seems on the surface like it's just like noise between folks, but it's really much more than that. It's um incredibly complicated. Language is the manifestation of human thought. And so to get perfectly working... Uh, voice interfaces—you've got to get a perfectly working brain or close to it. Uh, and actually, we have a chapter in there called Anthropomorphics, where we actually talk about the um, the more you sort of raise the specter of language and raise the specter of uh, human like technology, the more people's expectations are going to be. It just performs like human, but we're nowhere near there yet. I don't know if you guys had Siri, but it was a little bit of a letdown. Um, and I, I think the a better tech uh better technique is to do things like um uh zoomorphism rather than anthropomorphism like uh R2D2 right he doesn't really talk he sort of chirps and whirs um but we get what he means and he's not explaining to us like the iliad uh or higher order mathematics yeah. he's just like sort of expressing an attitude and that's enough for us um i think Siri, uh, like the the curve uh, voice interaction is going to be long and slow, um, but Siri was an amazing first sort of uh, popularization of voice interfaces uh, and I think they 're going to keep going
0: right the hieris- I mean the heuristics the idea of like uh, being able to talk in natural language i mean this, this brings to mind Star Trek, the next generation again for me because there 's kind of a, a bimodal um, distribution of, like, voice interactions in Star Trek. One is these kind of unstructured conversational interactions like, computer, I would like to hear some music. No, no, not that. Something with a Latin beat, right? Which is uh, <laughs> which is from Star Trek
2: Insurrection, by the way, uh, which I've... Wait, wait, wait. Who, who in Star Trek Interaction asked for something with a Latin beat? Oh,
0: uh, it's uh, Yeah, it's Captain Picard, because nice. uh, the unique uh, metaphasic ra- radiation of Donna Murphy's <laughs> planet, uh, you know, brings back his younger his youthful uh kind of mambo days um but uh but then right
1: jeez, that movie was terrible (laughs) Sorry,
0: i watched it recently on netflix and if by terrible you mean supremely awesome then i agree with you a lot of skin
1: stretching spectacularism in that movie (laughs)
0: Um yeah yeah the skin the skin stretching right like that could have gone to a much darker place and they they sort of didn't uh they didn't yeah. take advantage i think of their of their setup but right okay so you can have these kind of uh unstructured natural language conversations but when he wants to order food he says tea earl grey hot right which is in in essence you've trained the the humans in a protocol for interacting with the uh interacting with the machine um you know that is to say like from what most general to most specific uh description or maybe the the parameters have to be in a certain order and that's more like typing a command into uh into a uh you know like shell a prompt or yeah, something exactly. yeah exactly like into a shell command line like you know i want to run the T program with the flags earl grey and hot set um, <laughs> so uh so right, yeah. it's it's sort of inconsistent like computer I'd like a a, a cup of, of of really hot earl grey T, you know, doesn't doesn't happen. T or gray hot happens.
2: Well, let me let me Matt, let me try to uh, to, to apply Chris's theory here to what you're just describing here. Chris earlier was talking about how um, sci-fi has to both push the boundary and yet also sort of respect um, the the limitations of technology that the audience is familiar with, right? So the limitations that the audience is familiar with is uh, giving commands in this very structured way, like T earl grey hot right c colon backslash auto exec dot bat right that sort of thing right and so that's the express, uh, uh, respecting the limitations but pushing the boundary forward then is computer i would like to hear some music no not that something with a latin flair <laughs> chris is, am i am i uh am i interpreting your uh, your theory correctly
3: yeah, I think so. And I mean, like, pay attention to the distinction between him ordering that uh, Earl Grey hot um, and then turning and talking to data in a completely sort of normal, natural voice. Um, and what's the difference there, right? You've got the technology in the world. The ship can understand different people talking. Um, I forget what episode it is, but there's actually a command that's given to the computer that's passed between Riker and Deanna Troy, and the computer doesn't skip a beat, right? It understands language. It can fabricate language. But because it doesn't look human, um, that narratively, it doesn't really work for it to be completely human, unless unless it's going to sort of take a one hundred and eighty degree, degree turn and start acting like uh, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the uh, at, at the end of the room. Wow, I messed that one up. <laughs> hitchhiker's Guide uh, to
2: to the Galaxy,
3: to the Galaxy. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you know what this you know what this brings to mind is it makes me think about the matrix. And it makes me think about how if you made the matrix either now or a number of years from now, would you make it so that people physically plugged into the matrix? Right? Like like how Neo has the jack in the back of his head, right? And they plug the plug into the back of his head. Like there's no reason why in this future where there's all this tremendous technology, that can't be a wireless link. (laughs) Right. But they make it a wired link probably because at the time it felt more grounded. Like if there was just a button you pushed and it zoned you in via a wireless thing, that would probably be too far away from people's everyday experience of the kind of technology we're talking about for them to believe – for them to sort of feel invested in that kind of world, right? Like, uh, is that sort of like the distance we're talking about here?
3: Well, I also started to think that uh, specifically for that first movie, they really wanted to go into body horror. So the notion that you had this technology that sort of got, you know, you remember the, the length of that needle when they were plugging it, it was like clearly in the center of the brain. Um, I think there were, you know... Movies two and three, I don't even want to talk about them, but they didn't really go as deeply into the body horror that that first movie was. To get our attention to say this is not Star Trek, this is not Star Wars, Uh, this is kind of gross, and uh, watch this. Watch how we sort of uh, impale the back of this guy's head. Mm.
1: Yeah. Do you talk about that in the book? Do you talk about sort of the narrative function of choosing different kinds of interface technologies? Or is it we, sort of the other way around?
3: Yeah, we steer a little bit clear of it. There's been lots of books about sort of the narrative function of props and technology and whatever. And we want to steer a bit clear of it. I certainly have my own pet theories. Of course, you can't write a book like this without having them. Um, and we make a nod to them every now and then, um, especially when we. There's this um, one technique that I sort of developed over the course of writing the book called. Apologetics, um, which is, are you guys familiar with it from, like, uh, theology?
1: Sure. Yes, indeed, yep.
3: Okay, so if if your audience isn't, it is that notion of sort of explaining away what seems broken on the surface. Um, And oftentimes when you run into like a really bad uh, piece of interface in sci-fi, I end up catching myself like, well, it'd be super easy just to trash it. Um, But let me think really hard about it. Could it really have worked this way? What's what's secretly really going on there? Um, And it actually led to a ton of insights throughout the course of the book. Um, Some interfaces are absolutely beyond repair. Uh, and those are sort of the fun ones to uh, talk about. Um, but when it comes to uh, thinking about things like the Matrix, like apologetics end up, ended up playing in uh, quite a bit, sort of from that narrative angle. Um, but oh, I'm yeah. Uh, let me restate that. Um, Apologetics is a way to pretend the narrative is complete and whole and good, and that's kind of a nod to the fact that, look, we know these things have to work as storytelling items, um, and that's sort of where the Venn overlap doesn't really work for all of interaction design. Uh, one thing that uh, we discovered in writing the book is that there aren't any volume controls in sci-fi. Well, there's actually one. Uh, I'll give you guys a no award if you can remember which one it is.
2: Uh, one I mean- I'm thinking of is, uh, is what, Back to the Future? Or they turned that <laughs> amp up really loud at the beginning.
3: Oh wow! Okay, that might be number two. Uh, although no, he did that in the present, but it is sort of a sci-fi genre. Good one, good one. The the only one I can think that we could find sort of during the course of the writing of the book was the the volume control that Ellie uses in Contact. Not a very exciting one, um, but uh, like if you were trying to do volume control in your daily work and you were looking to sci-fi to do it, there wouldn't be much there. there right, is, they have sound engineers. W-
0: when Picard is playing his mambo, he does turn the. I, I think he tells the computer to. to turn the volume up and down i think that happens a couple times in star trek but it's not a, it's not a it's not a control i mean it's not a dedicated control anyway
3: right it's it's sort of like a voice command kind of thing yeah yeah
0: I, uh, you know, you mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide a little a little while ago, and there's a great little bit of interaction design on the Heart of Gold when Arthur and Ford are thrown off the Vogon ship and and uh, rescued at an infinite improbability uh, into the you know the belly of the Heart of Gold. Um, there's a, a panel there with a button that says uh, has a little plaque under it that says "Do not press this button." Do not press. Yes. Arthur <laughs> <laughs> presses it, and a sign pops up that says "Do not press this button again." <laughs> 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 yeah it really is
3: uh i wish we could have gone more into sort of humorous sci-fi right. you, you end up like second guessing a ton of it um but my, personally I actually it's some of my favorite yeah i love that interface i love a lot of them actually marvin as uh sort of an ai of choice uh the most depressed robot in existence really love it
2: so um on the Overthinking It podcast, a discussion of user interface in science fiction would not be complete without mentioning my personal favorite, Terminator. Um, so, Chris, <laughs> Always I, I, with the Terminator. I'm really curious to get your take on augmented reality, especially with the um, with the upcoming release of uh, Google's Project Glass, right? Which brings <laughs> the uh, termo, Terminator vision. Type of augmented reality view uh, into the hands of mere humans themselves. Like um, what uh, What in uh, Google's Project Glass do you see as uh, being influenced by science fiction and where do you possibly see it going forward?
3: Well, I certainly think that uh, all of us have sort of been influenced by that uh, notion of uh – augmented reality for years, but um, the first place I can remember it from is Westworld. Do you remember that when Yul Brenner's sort of walking oh. around, and he's got that sort of uh, pixelated uh, image of the world, uh, and then and you get that sense that, oh, hey, he can only see heat. And it's actually kind of a cool moment in the movie where they're using the augmented reality or, like, the robot vision um, to tell you about what the rule of the world
1: is. Um, wait, but wait, there's a movie where Yul Brenner plays a robot cowboy?
3: Yes. amazing! It's it's actually the first moments where, like, uh, there's a gun that he tries to fire, and he has to look down, and it says, sort of like, batteries depleted. Um, It's a hilarious moment that, like, underscores all of the cowboyness of it. Um, But yeah, you should totally check out Westworld. That's, like, the earliest augmented reality that we could find. Um, But yeah, all that stuff sort of influences us to say, why don't we have this now between, like, uh, Terminator and Robocop, who has this sort of that same augmented reality thing going on? Um, We. Uh, all of the interfaces that we see in sci-fi end up sort of influencing our expectations of the future. What's coming? What's near? They're like, look, I can see it, in I can see it up there on the screen. Why, why don't I have my jetpack yet or my uh, augmented reality? I don't know if there's a direct line between that and um, the makers of Google Glass. Um, we found lots of direct lines from science fiction to the real world, and we talk about a little bit about the, at the book. But I haven't talked to anyone at Google yet to find out how influenced they were. Um, but I certainly think that um, there are sort of four layers that we had. Found in sci-fi interfaces where there's like simple um, information augmentation like in, uh, in Iron Man. When Tony's flying around in the suit for the first time, there's this weird moment where he's passing by a, a Ferris wheel and the inter- Jarvis kind of fills up about a third of his view screen by telling him the historical background of the Ferris wheel.
2: It pulled, I'm not the sure. it pulled up the Wikipedia article for it.
3: Yeah, yeah, it did. And told them all about the Santa Monica Fair. And I don't know what Jarvis was thinking. Um, but there's like that layer of AR. There's also sort of um, uh, goal awareness is the, the highest end where the AR is sort of aware of what you're trying to do and then helping you get there rather than just showing you, you know, crap about uh, from Wikipedia. Um, but I certainly think that we've seen it in sci-fi. People know about it. And if we can get over sort of the goofy look of Google Glasses, um, there's no reason we shouldn't have it um, as we sort of move about in the day. There's lots of, lot, lots of work that I do at, uh, at my day job is about trying to facilitate human-to-human contact, but without having people spend all of their time with eyes on a screen. And Google Glasses kind of help you do that.
0: Sure. So, I mean, it's. Uh, wasn't it someone like Eric Schmidt or someone said like we actually could do face recognition in your glasses, but uh, people would think it's pretty creepy. <laughs> you know. Well, I, yeah. I think they have that right, like or at least the capacity to to make that. You know, if Facebook can do it.
3: Yeah, Facebook can do it. And, and actually, I kind of think that technology tends to kind of creep up on us that way um, in ways that, oh, hey, I get this one benefit from it, um, such as, oh, hey, we're just helping you auto-tag your photos. It's harmless. But of course, um, eventually someone's going to say, and probably like, uh, people who sort of grow up with that face tagging will be like, hey, why don't I use this in my Google glasses? And to them, it won't seem as uh, creepy and terrifying. But to those of us, uh, you know, if it we're like, kind of like the boiled frogs. Um, as far as the technology is concerned, if it happens too fast, we're all freaked out about it.
0: Sure. I, it's also a question of, like, who has access to that to that information, you know what I mean? If If their algorithm is doing it, then they know... You know, presumably who everything I uh, who everyone I know, everyone I'm in pictures with uh, are even, you know, actually they can run it whether or not I elect to tag the photos. They can run it and know who I'm right, like at all the after hours parties with, uh, you know, doing uh, uh, morally questionable things, Um, although that might help the CDC.
2: <laughs> I, uh,
0: not, not, not in my case. I, I'm afraid I don't have that interest.ing life. <laughs> but, You know
2: what uh, I was just thinking? I was thinking of tagging photos and, and Terminator. Uh, you know, had to bring it back to Terminator because um, uh, you know recently we uh you know we saw a little bit of sort of an updated version of of the Terminator mythology with the, the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV show and this idea of John Connor as a teenager in the modern world. Like, imagine like the last thing that John Connor would want have done to him would be a picture taken of him at all you know uh, by his high school peers because that's just going to get tagged on facebook immediately and you know that's the last thing that he wants to have done right you don't want to do skynet's job for you you know like you know (laughs) that's kind of search facebook for tag pictures of john connor
3: Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah if uh, skynet sort of emerged from facebook i don't think anyone would be too surprised
2: uh, you know, that's the first
0: time I've heard that suggested, but that actually sounds a lot more plausible to me than Skynet emerging from some kind of military uh, technological application. Mm-hmm. I th- uh, Wow. Pete, I may follow your lead and delete my Facebook account uh, before
1: too long. <laughs> fight fight the it, future. Okay. <laughs> so let, let me ask you the real steel question. <laughs> uh, and I guess I'll formulate it as this, because have you seen Real Steel, Chris? Yes, I have seen that so movie. you're familiar with, it's all about, it's and it makes the case really it's all about like uh this sort of uh, design and it makes the really strong case that people's sort of developed sort of motor, motor memory, right, like physical memory and their ability to manipulate their own bodies is going to have some sort of inherent superiority in the ability to manipulate a machine, Oh, right? so this uh, is,
0: Pete, this is a special case of the Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles question.
1: Yeah, well, because <laughs> Krang, here's the funny thing, Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right, he's this brain that's inside this giant robot body, and you know how he makes the robot body move?
0: He has two levers.
1: He has two <laughs> levers <that> he pulls <laughs> with it. and you know what he doesn't have? Hands,
0: <laughs> right? Yes, no, hands. he has two ten. He has two tentacles, <laughs> prehensile tentacles.
1: Yes, and they're not very strong, and probably not very fast. And he does immensely complex things with his robot, including shooting <laughs> eye lasers and shooting <laughs> rocket fists and stepping on news vans and all and kidnapping ladies and all this stuff just with these two levers. Uh, I'm sure he has. He also has buttons that are on the interior of his suit, uh, but it's unclear how he can reach them given the length of his hands and where they're positioned. Um, but like, the question so. So, so there's a lot of of mechs, right, and robots in sci-fi that move like people, and there seems to be a case made – and, like, so there's a lot of mechs that are maneuvered by levers, and there's a lot of mechs that, mechs that are maneuvered by, like, either linking directly to your brain, right, sort of Neon Genesis Evangelion kind of style, right, uh, in which it's like this sort of – there's a weird suit and you're, you're hooked up to it, or somehow, like, sort of motion capturing you in some way. And the idea is that your sort of subconscious, your, your cerebellum or whatever's ability to control your own body is superior to any other interface that you would use to control this mech, even to the extent that it isn't worth putting wheels on the thing, right? Because your ability to control its legs is so much better than what you could do with something. I don't know, do you guys, have you thought about that, about sort of, like, bipedal robot technology and sort of human motion capture and an interface to that degree and like how it kind of works out.
3: Well, I think one of the things that we have absolutely not nailed in science fiction is brain interfaces in general. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't make it like we see a lot of uh, sort of things hooked into brains um, and then data in and data out. But we don't see people doing things like physical things with brains. Um, like uh, there's a scene where Paris uh, is sort of flying the shuttle flyer in Star Trek Voyager. But he's just sort of sitting there and we don't see any interface other than his being strapped to this chair and covered. Neon wires, and somehow that is enough to convince us that oh, sure, he's got this uh, direct to brain interface to control the shuttlecraft. Um, we, I, we, one interface that didn't make it into the book that was sort of a beautiful gestural control of a mech, uh, was Megamind. Did you guys see that one?
1: No, I missed Megamind, I didn't, I didn't catch it. It's not Despicable Me, but they don't have good interfaces there. I think it's mostly of the lever variety.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, but, I, yeah. I actually. See Despicable Me, um, but uh, Megamind actually sort of gets into this uh, hemispherical glass thing at the top of this giant robot uh, that he ends up sort of controlling by moving as if he were the mech. Uh, there are some really questionable sort of physics going on, like when the robot is uh, sort of thrashing around. How is it that Megamind is able to sort of you know stay in place and not get thrown around the little glass dome? Um, but nonetheless, like it's a very natural thing for him to do, right? It's a, it's a one to one matter. I raise my arm, the mech raises its arm I sort of point out my finger in gun form And uh, tr- pull the trigger with my thumb And the mech sort of fires it um, I think interfaces like one of the things that we try and do In our daily work Is to try and sort of uh, remove the distance Between the thing you're doing And the thing you want done um, And much more so than real steel uh, Mind actually I think kind of got it right uh, Except for the sort of physics inside of the dome thing but right, if you haven't right. it out, check out that film, because actually uh, for all of its goofiness, uh, that uh, that moment I was really impressed by.
0: Right. There's kind of a, there's sort of a line that we're we're we've talked about a little bit with Matrix and that we're kind of edging up on here with um, uh, interfaces with machines that are distinct from us and kind of like body modification. uh uh, technology. I mean, is there? Um, have you addressed? Uh, have you addressed something that that like the line between uh, the line between machine outside of you and machine that kind of is you?
3: <laughs> so, uh, the chapter thirteen is about sex interfaces. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually remembering the one example that shoots to mind is from this uh, really campy movie in the '80s called Space Truckers. Uh- <laughs> Tell me any of you have seen Space truckers? I can't no, say that I have. <laughs>
1: okay. I have in fact I have seen Space truckers, yes. <laughs>
3: okay. So <laughs> you, to, yeah. my my condolences and uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Sassy. It, it's a sassy film and sort of certainly self-aware and tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, but the evil guys named Macanudo. Uh, And Macanoodoo is a cyborg who ends up uh, kidnapping one of the sort of female protagonists. And he brings her back and sort of blackmails in her and says, we're going to have to have sex if you want me to release your buddies. Um, And even though the camera sort of never pans down, it's very polite. uh, But he has essentially like a chainsaw attachment uh, to his crotch uh, and to sort of uh, when she agrees to have sex with him uh, you see him sort of reach down and have to go uh, and uh, the, the, the funniness of the scene comes from the fact that he ends up getting performance anxiety and the machine won't start and he has to go like take it to a shelf and try and fix it uh, but uh, that's actually the only example that I can think of other than sort of like uh, you know cyborg stuff where they're just like oh believe me this actor is a robot because I put some prosthetics on him that uh, you get that sort of man-machine hybrid huh
1: yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising that I saw Truckers at like two in the morning on HBO when I was 16 years old.
3: Yeah. So. <laughs> That's where it's it belongs. That's kind of like where it, it, it belongs. The,
0: for. Uh, yeah, they, they, I don't they, expect it. The, the chainsaw uh, sex interface sounds pretty traumatic for a, a 16-year-old, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not promising
3: it, uh, yeah, If you want to sort of ensure that somebody's going to be a Luddite Showing them that scene might just do it pretty quickly
0: Well, right, like, no. uh, you know, given given a teenager's sort of, a, you know Just normal level of anxiety about sex uh, yeah, ma- Making the whole thing an, an issue of heavy machinery is probably not helpful
3: <laughs> Yeah, exactly <laughs> Although it might encourage yeah. them to, uh, you know, attend shop class quite regularly Make sure that <laughs> doesn't happen
0: well, we have a um, – so we uh, are giving away a copy of your book, aren't we, on Overthinking It, which thank you very much for making one available for us. Yep, yep, yep. We're, very, we're very glad to. Um, there will be instructions uh, in a companion post on Overthinking It, but, but what you um, – uh what you must do in short is uh log on to the special forum topic that we will have designated as the contest uh you know ground zero as the contest uh you know uh, proving ground and uh make a post on that we would love it if your post uh were about your favorite or least favorite um uh science fiction interface uh some example of uh of great ui or, or or poor UI design uh, in some science fiction property, but uh, it doesn't have to be. You can just write uh, your you know favorite recipe for apple pie, or uh, <laughs> the words herp derp, or you know wh- whatever you like. In that, thread. I can
2: has awesome book, please. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and one lucky randomly selected winner uh, will receive uh, a copy of the awesome book and uh, be able to uh, be able to learn. All about UI design. Um, Yes. So, uh, great, Chris. Thanks very much. The book is called Make It So... And uh, we've been chatting with Chris. Chris, uh, is there one parting shot you want to leave us with? One lesson that we all, as uh, you know, because we're all in a way, we're all interaction designers, aren't we? In a,
2: <laughs> in a way, uh, in a way.
0: I appreciate your I appreciate the the weight and the pith to that statement. <laughs> uh, is there uh, one lesson that we can take away from your your incredibly deep viewing of science fiction? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so.
3: Um, the 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 main thing that I sort of, the, you know, you end up talking about your book a lot at cocktail parties, especially when you're uh, a nerdy introvert who's written a book on nerdy introversion. Um, and uh, the, the sort of parting shot I get to use at cocktail parties is that my mission uh, in having written the book is to get people to stop watching science fiction. Uh, and a lot of folks say, oh, wait, what does he mean? What does he mean? Uh, I don't mean, like, start just reading it. I read sci-fi, but um, what I really mean is, like, I re- my mission is to get people to start using science fiction, um, as a way to sort of uh, take a look at what it is the stories that we're telling ourselves technologically and I guess narratively of course too about what it is the, the future is and what it's going to bring um, and uh, especially for interaction designers to start using it as this body of technology that are setting the expectations of audiences that we shouldn't put up onto a pedestal before we examine it like really carefully. Mm. Uh, so, y- So use sci-fi would be that parting
0: shot. Excellent. The book, Make It So, Interaction Design Lessons from Sci-Fi. The author, Chris Nossel. Chris, thanks for being on the Overthinking it podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. We are back. Uh, that was a fascinating conversation, uh, yeah, I thought, about absolutely. sci-fi interfaces and, and user interaction design. We could have gone on, gone on and on and on, but we have more to talk
2: about. Comic-Con, you was there. I was. Once again, for the fourth year in a row, I have drunk from the fire hose of pop culture that is New York Comic-Con. Um, it was a great time. I went with Matt Belinky this year. Um, and uh, so let me just uh, start blathering and, and summarizing some of the big takeaways. And I'll go to and also uh, segue into some uh, more specific things that I observed that I wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, do you guys remember me talking about Comic-Con last year on the podcast? yes. And you remember me saying that I was feeling a little bit over Comic Con. Do you sure. remember I like said this? Yeah, yeah,
0: my yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That there was not the, the, the bloom was off the rose or the blush was off the rose or something.
2: Certainly. And, and you know, once, once the bloom is off the rose, you can never really full, fully put it back on. But um, seeing a, a rose uh, bloom for the first time helps bring a little bit of that back, if you know what I'm saying. That is to say that um, going with Matt and And having uh, watching him experience his first comic con was a really joyous thing because uh you know he got to experience it for the first time um, and appreciate the wonder of it all and he even talked about it as well from that sort of same uh, in, in a similar way about talking about how um you know that sense of pure fandom um, is a bit lost on us as we uh, get older and as we engage so heavily in this exercise of overthinking. Pop culture right. that you don't get to step back and be this uh, unabashed fan, um, and he got a little bit of that back. So much like he got a little bit of that back, uh, I got some of my fandom of comic on back by watching him be able to experience it for the first time, huh. um, and just even more uh, more broadly than that. Like comic con, last year I went by myself. The first two years that I'd gone, the first year, uh, uh, rather, you and I went together, had a great time. Uh-huh. The year after that, I brought a a friend of mine to comic-con and we experienced it together um had a good time last year i went by myself and it's it's a it is a lonely thing you know like sure like you know i got my press pass i'm there as quote-unquote press i am covering it and you know journalists go to cover events by themselves all the time but uh, comic-con is a little bit different in that you know it is it is really for the fans and um you know even though you know, we are a bit up on this, um, you, you know, a pedestal of, of overthinking pop culture. I still do consider myself, and I, and, and I've, you know, lost some of that fanboyish glee. I do still consider myself a fan, and to have uh, not gone in with that uh, that sort of enthusiasm and to be able to share that enthusiasm with someone last year was was disappointing for sure uh-huh. so i'm really glad that I, I i came with blinky this that blinky came with me this year and, and we got to share that experience together i'm glad he, I'm, not, I'm sorry that he's not on the podcast to talk about it uh, with us t- together but uh, he is with us certainly in spirit and you'll be hearing will be hearing more from him uh, in his own words as he writes about it on the site later this week
0: well that's i mean that's something i said not to be sentimental or to rehash my sentimentality but that like one of the whole points of this is that you can kind of share it with share it with people right like the long lonely nights that i've spent alone with my uh netflix instant streaming um you know those are not those are not great nights but the the nights i've spent with with you guys especially sort of and netflix instant streaming talking about what we are streaming um live streaming uh, I you know I had a problem with live streaming, but I saw a urologist. He cleared it right up.
2: Oh, that's, that's I'm glad you did that, Matt.
0: But yeah, uh, you know uh, it's it's better it's better with friends, right? It's better when you it's better when you share it. It's better uh, in community than it is. Um, uh, mm. It's better in community than it is by yourself. Overthinking it is not a solitary activity. By by which I mean not the uh, not the website, the uh, the actual act.
2: No, absolutely not. And just a good example of that is just walking onto the floor and like having the two of us there, like, and we, we sort of feed off of each other and feed off of the energy. And so we just like kind of swagger up to this one guy who has audaciously um, created a, a a a drawing of quote unquote the I think it was like the entire cartoon universe. When I say the entire cartoon universe, I mean like we, we probed him about what that means. But you know, there's this, if you can imagine, just <laughs> you
0: probed him. <laughs>
2: Yeah, incredibly dense drawing of cartoon characters and characters from various uh, uh, pop culture properties. And so, uh, you know, Blinky just wanders up, just like asking him a bunch of questions and <laughs> needles him and like grills him a little bit in terms of what is and what isn't on there. Uh, we've got that on a videotape as well. So we'll be posting that on the site soon. You Videotape. You're talking about uh, speaking of uh, pop culture user interfaces, right? Uh, <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean your your description of I mean I went to Boston. I performed in a show at Boston Comic Con this past year, and when you're talking about the, kind of the experience with it together, I think that there's probably a, a misconception right about these kinds of things. Whenever I'm sitting down with friends to try to determine what to do on like a, a night out, right, I, I always try to break it down and classify it. If if we're at the place where I don't know what I want to do, what should we do? It's like, well, there are three things you can do on a night out, right? You can socialize with each other, you can go do something active, or you can be entertained. Right, I, I say those are the three things. I should probably add, like, eat something as like, but I never really count that as a legitimate activity to go do. Uh, sort of like an add-on. But Comic Con, the way that you see it covered in the in the web news and the TV news, leads you to think that it's a whole bunch of things that are there to entertain you. And it, generally, if it's anything like Boston Comic Con was, or PAX was, or any of the other conventions of sort I've been to, that's really not what it is. Like, you can just wander around and nothing will happen to you. Right, like there's no. It's not like going to a movie theater where there's like a planned experience. Right, it's not even like going to an IKEA. Right, yeah.
2: That note, like the the first time that we went to Comic Con, rather at night, like it was more sort of like go there and be entertained because we got sneak previews of the Watchmen and the new Terminator. Yeah, we did.
0: We sat ourselves in the big hall and just watched a lot of the big the big movie previews. And though we spent a lot of time on the floor, I think we were not quite ready for that jelly. Right, like we couldn't kind of address the uh, sensory overload even of the, the floor.
1: Right, right. And then so later on – so the first one, you, you went and you treated it like a kind of passive uh, entertainment experience. And in subsequent ones, you've treated it more as either an activity that you do yourself or a social event that you share with other people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, And it seems, it seems like just misidentifying it can be um, – there's, there's a saying in, in Magic the Gathering strategy, which is that misidentification of role equals game loss. Uh, so if you, if you know (laughs) that you have to know what you're trying to do and you need to know sort of what, and that's dictated both by the, the situation and by your own position in the situation, right? It's kind of something that's both within you and without you. And there's kind of a right way and a wrong way to look at what you should be doing in any given place. Right. Um, so yeah, anyway, that sounds cool. That sounds like it was, it was... I'm glad that... It's funny because I know Blinky has a son now, so I'm sure that there are many things that oh, he's yeah, experiencing yeah, yeah, yeah. again. Did he? Did, did his son come with you to Comic-Con or no?
2: No, we, he did not come. We went together on Saturday, and then okay. uh, and then a Blinky... Uh, took his son on Sunday, which is sort of more of a kids theme day. Um, so I'm curious to hear his report from from that. I believe one of the highlights from Sunday's uh, Comic Con proceedings was a Spider-Man birthday celebration. And um, two notable things about that: one, I think they were going for the Guinness Book of World the Guinness World Record for um, birthday card with the most signatures. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's like, all right is and this
2: that, is for the 50th anniversary 50th birthday of spider-man right 50th birthday of spider-man yeah. um and and the second notable thing about that uh, is uh that by mayoral proclamation uh, uh the city of new york declared uh november sorry uh sunday no sunday october 14th to be spider-man day in new york city um so uh, that was two notable things. Actually, there's a third thing: is that Spider-Man has turned fifty, which means that uh, he really should be looking at his uh, investment portfolio, uh, being thinking about retirement, and also also medical um, uh, medical exams that he should uh, make sure to be getting at that
0: at yeah, that age. Right? I mean, Spider-Man, that spider colonoscopy is no joke. <laughs> uh.
1: <laughs> I was going to try to make a spider annuity joke, but that would even be beyond me. Like it's just not possible. Like he needs to make sure that his web distributions don't overwhelm his web reservoirs <laughs> he keeps enough web fluid in reserve to last him through the the longer lifespan that modern spider people happen to have right um, oh here,
2: here's to go, to go on a little tangent here um as we all want to do on this podcast um health for for superheroes who have secret identities and uh physiologies which are different from humans right um okay so granted spider-man or peter parker uh, is what like a freelancer at the daily bugle um, so probably doesn't have great health insurance or, you know, just in general, great access to health care. Thanks, Obama. Uh, all right. So let's just assume that he does get himself uh, in front of a doctor and or maybe he can't because the doctor would perform a physical exam to the extent that he would notice that there is something strange about this boy, um, that he's not, you know, your are typical, um, uh, your typically human and that like his, his anatomy or some some aspect of his physical self is different than uh, than what you would normally expect, and that would sort of blow his cover.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would be easy for Batman to do, right? Because like he could just like forge a a doctor's note pretty easily and he wouldn't have a problem doing it right like he could just he like Lucius fox happens to be a doctor and just like signs off so you don't have to be like you have 18 fractured ribs and like you have a broken back and there's also um other people he knows doctor from nightfall whose name escapes me superman though would have a huge problem right because the daily planet might require superman to get a physical as a condition of his health insurance and he would probably not want to break the rules right like but he can't go to a doctor um So what is he going to do? I guess he goes to Star Labs, right? Like a lot of superheroes do have doctors. They have people in their lives who could be doctors. Do you think – is Charles Xavier a PhD or is he a a psychiatrist? (laughs) Uh, What kind of doctorate? I'm sure other people would know this. What kind of doctorate does Xavier have? And could Xavier be like the doctor's no-guy for superheroes?
2: Can, can he write prescriptions? This is also very important. So. Can
1: he get you that discount? Can you get like the discount if you if you just, if you work out as a superhero often enough? Can you get the discount in your health insurance that you get if you go to the gym? Like, uh, does are there if you're a superhero and you smoke? Do they factor in the lower likelihood of you getting lung cancer due to your healing factor uh, into your health insurance premiums? You know, these uh, are really important questions. I think actually, like a health
2: insurance for superheroes would be a great Comic Con panel. We should go ahead and start putting that pitch together, <laughs> so that we can actually panelists for over, for Comic Con in, a, in in a future installment. Um, so speaking of panels at Comic Con, see that segue I did there. Yep. Um, so there was a uh, you know there was some aspect of sitting there and being entertained or informed uh, at, at Comic Con that I that we participated in this year. Um, Belinky and I sat in on a sneak preview of an upcoming TBS reality show called Wait for It: King of the Nerds. Um, have either of you heard about this? No, can't say so, I have. So it's coming out in January, and um, and I, I gather from our podcast conversations and our conversations outside of the podcast that we're not big watchers of reality TV. Um, so the, the we, the immediate we on this podcast are probably not the target – um, the target audience for this show, but Comic Con writ large is certainly the target audience for this show, this upcoming reality show. Um, so it's it's not surprising what it is about, right? So uh, King of the Nerds is it's like they they you know put out a casting call for for quote unquote nerds, um, and they selected about a dozen of them, or I think eleven of them, and um, you know they they are um, put into a a house, right? you know sort of a, a nerd. Uh, Nerdvana, which is what it was called. Yes, Nerdvana. And, um, you know, there's, like, the weekly challenges. They compete against each other, and then the winner uh, gets to sit on the throne of games to be crowned king of the nerds um, and win, win the reality competition. So we got to we, – we saw this preview. And, uh, by the way, also, the two of the actors from the movie Revenge of the Nerds uh, are sort of the hosts of the reality show, and they spoke at the panel uh which is pretty cool. Um but what I wanted to ask you guys about and bring up uh, uh to discuss is this uh, uh is 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 two bloated words. I'm just, I'm going to put them out there and I'm going to go from there. Uh geek exploitation and also geek face. Um we've talked about this I think in the context of the TV show Big Bang Theory about how um in you know in a a mainstream media um, property or, or or entity when trying to appeal to this quote unquote nerd or geek demographic that is supposedly ascendant uh, because of the rise of technology and whatnot, um, they create things that are, are targeted for nerds or geeks or whatever, and, and um, they do two things. One, they uh, they sort of pander to them in a way that uh, that, that is is not. Um, is not of the best intentions or is or so that's that one aspect of it and the other is that they are uh, they are taking this parody of geeks or nerds and uh, putting that out to the rest of, of the world to the larger audience um to sort of have a laugh at their expense um so i know you guys haven't seen uh, the, these clips that i'm talking about but um and i'm not saying that this show is an instance of geek face or geek exploitation, um, but it certainly made me think about these things, and I wanted to bring these ideas to you guys to hear what you had to think about them.
0: So, ge- geek face is when I like I you know put on my black plastic thick rimmed glasses.
2: Something like that. Or like, here's an example. I haven't watched a lot of the Big Bang Theory. I've seen a little bit of it. Um, but there's, you know, a, a, what's played for laughs is this thing like, um, oh, such and such, like, you know, is falling in love with someone on World of Warcraft. <laughs> that, and, and, you know, that is that geek face is, is that being, um, uh, uh, you know, that aspect of geek culture being put out uh, at, at the expense of geek culture for, for the rest of the culture to laugh at.
1: Huh. I mean, I don't know. I guess I think you one of the you sort of said two things at once, and I think it's important to kind of make the distinction, or at least identify how they function differently. Um, One is that you know, because remember, black exploitation is not about exploiting black people so that white people will see the movie. In black exploitation, the black people being exploited are the audience. Right, like it's not—it's not about, um, you know. It's like we we have this group of people, and we can just give them any old crap as long as it has their own face on it. They'll go see it because they're not watching our other movies. And so the idea that this is nerd exploitation is that you know nerds are going to watch the show because we're just going to say, oh, it's got nerds in it. In that sense, like, is that really a problem? (laughs) Like, like that doesn't really bother me very much. No, that's Um,
0: another word for that is sort of niche marketing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's a problem if you're, like, deliberately not allowing, like, nerds. It's also, like, it's really spurious to compare nerds to, like, a a race or a sexual orientation. I mean, I know they're all constructions, but, like, I'm reminded of the Harvey P. scene in American Splendor, right, when they go see Revenge, which I've cited before in the podcast, where they go see Revenge of the Nerds, and they're like, oh, we really identify with these people. We're such nerds, and they're such nerds, and they get to win. And he goes, no. You know what? Those people... People are they're in college and they're gonna get out of college and they're gonna get great jobs and they're gonna have kids and families and homes and and they're they're only gonna be outcasts for like five years of their lives. We are always gonna be outcasts because we have actual serious social problems, you know that's not how he says, but it's like, you know, the a lot of the a lot of the stuff it's like I mean, you see it on the internet a lot too. There's like the meme of the girl with nerd written on her hand, which is like a joke about like, Oh, I'm such a nerd, like I totally once like went to a Star Trek movie, oh my god, you know, like A lot of these people who are part of nerd culture are not suffering the kind of crippling social ostracism that we uh, attribute nerd culture to having, and even if they do suffer it, it's for a very short period of time, right? Like, uh, if anything, I would say that the strength of the niche marketing to the nerd demographic is a a good sign because it kind of shows that in the fragmentation of our social organization, like – people uh, who I self-identify with this have, like, enough people of their own ilk to hang out with and talk to that they're not going to necessarily be victimized as much or be as worried about the victimization or be as dependent on the people who victimize them for social approval.
0: Right. Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing, and it goes hand in hand with kind of the ascendancy of Comic-Con, right, as a mainstream cultural phenomenon, as opposed to, like, a place where aspiring comic artists go to take workshops and get their portfolios evaluated by senior comic art. Right. Um, uh, You know, that is to say there's there's a kind of um, nostalgia uh, among the stalwarts for uh, the time when when we were more embattled, you know, when when we were more socially ostracized, when this wasn't just like people who are members of pop culture fandoms of various stripes or, uh, you know, people who are. You know, I don't know, into computers or into video games or, or something like that, which is, by the way, a huge, huge market, right? And not, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's different if your definition of nerd, right, is someone who can write an operating system from scratch, you know, then, then you probably are talking about a kind of more rarefied, uh, more rarefied demographic, but the, the, I, I guess, Pete, sorry, the, there's a lot, there's a lot in there, but the, the one strain I want to, I want to point out is the, um, is the kind of resentment, right, from the, the sort of hardest core, uh, of, of nerddom, um, um, the uh, the people who actually for whom nerddom is not uh, a question of enthusiasms, but a question of like possession of special skills uh, on computers, right?
1: Yeah, I think.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't lob up. Uh, I didn't lob up enough of uh, for you to respond to. It's great that there are. It's great that there are more nerds. I mean, it's great that there's a big enough nerd market that, like, you know, things like being into computers or being into this or that uh, science fiction television show is not. Um, you know, I don't know. You're not like what ostracized and cripplingly lonely in your small town anymore because there's a you know a larger community of people uh, uh, that you can talk to. But I I mean, I I want to highlight this 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 phenomenon within the community that you know there has passed away a glory from the earth, um, from like when you know when Comic Con was our little was our little club of people who uh, were just really really into comics.
1: It's also very fashionable to paint your own group as a persecuted group right now, like even more fashionable than usual uh, because of I think a lot of the. Social anger around the economic situation. Like, there is power in being the victim a political power sure and i think that that and i think that even children sense this and and see it they see it all around it they mirror the behavior they see around them which is like oh like you know oh no you know we're being abused by x we're being abused by y and like the number and groups are proliferating that are claiming this among everybody i'm not saying it's always misstated or it's overdone or and i'm especially not claiming that the people who have done it for the longest and and the hardest are uh are in, in you know uh, illegitimate in doing so i think that's part of the implication right is that like well i as a nerd am also being persecuted so you know why do we have to have civil rights protections <laughs> right like why aren't there civil rights protections for nerds because we're a group too and it's like no you're you're not like that it's different um but yeah, so, l- ju- l- yeah. l- let me let me just take a moment and clarify here that this show
2: um it is not portraying the nerds as a persecuted class. It
1: clearly They're all states, "Hot people. <laughs> even the big girl is hot." You know, like, <laughs> even the guy with the stupid vest. Okay, he could probably stand to change his hair color, but come on. <laughs> so the,
2: the so the, the show in its sort of intro pre-roll thing clearly states that like nerds are on the ascendant. Nerds have taken over. Nerds have won, right? Mark Zuckerberg is clearly put out there like he he's a nerd and he freaking rules the world. Right. Um, and so there's there's that aspect. Of, I mean, and he's building can Skynet. Can, he's
1: we doing- can debate the value of losing 40% of your net worth in three months if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg rules the world, sure. Oh, stock value, <laughs> schmock value. <laughs> right. Um, um, but th- it's all
0: about eyeballs, one. Pete. It's about aggregating eyeballs.
1: Look, we're a change bank. How do we make money? Volume. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let me but let me put this out there. It's it's uh, it's on
2: TBS, right? And uh, I may not watch enough TBS or, or cable television to be able to comment specifically on this. But like, to what extent is TBS still that you know mainstream? And I hate to use that word so casually, but to what extent is it is TBS a mainstream network versus something that's a little bit more niche?
0: Well, yeah, I mean it, TBS has come a long way, and I mean they've sort of branded themselves as the comedy network, right? And it's the home of Conan. Uh, Etc. It's also where reruns of Two Broke Girls will start playing in 2015. Mark your calendars, people.
2: <laughs> is George Lopez still on, um, on TBS? I, th- I think they let George go. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> right. Um, which is probably, you know, there's probably more to be said about persecuted <laughs> groups and the firing of, of George Lopez. Yeah. <laughs>
1: man the that, that, things george lopez did on his show to uh, we that's a whole other podcast honestly to talk about the rise and fall of the george lopez show that right. is uh that is a whole other kettle of fish that's,
0: that's a whole greek saga three play long greek saga you
1: know yeah exactly exactly
0: sing Muse, sing muse of george lopez
2: that man of <laughs> many twists and turns um, so, and and sort other of thing is like we we haven't seen this show yet, right? And I just Blinky and I just saw some short clips of it, and we heard some uh, some folks talk about it for maybe twenty minutes or so. So uh, much remains to be seen about how um, this show is going to treat its topic and the contestants in it. And just also keep in mind that there is something inherently exploitative of a reality show. When I say reality television, and when I say exploitative, I don't mean like laxploitation. I mean like actually exploiting the people who yeah. are on the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, like fun is being had at their expense. That's just part of the deal, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that is to say that uh, when it comes January, I will make sure to watch a, a one or two full episodes of it and report back at that time. And We'll have a, um, a, a fuller conversation with more context at that moment
0: excellent well until then uh, we can find more about comic-con on the site this week isn't that so mark
2: yes more comic-con content coming soon uh, some video some more photos some ruminations from blinky and myself about oh, comic-con what it is what it isn't uh what it will be in in the mysterious uh cybernetic future that we will live in freaking comic-cons how do they work <laughs> <laughs> and you can find
0: a, a photo gallery of some awesome cosplay uh, uh, up on com right now. Well, I think we will leave it there for this week. Uh, you can if you want to join the conversation, call 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Call or text. Uh, you can email podcast at com, or you can do what everybody else does and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. Look in the overthinking it forums for uh information well no for the contest for information about the contest there'll be a post on the site but uh go to overthinking slash forums for the um for the contest to win your own awesome copy of make it so and uh we'll be back next week till then you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny
2: It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. Computer, subject popular culture to level scrutiny. Does not deserve.
0: (laughs) Computer, scrutiny. (laughs) Level it probably doesn't deserve. Pop culture.
1: Computer. How's it going there? How you doing? (laughs) Put the chainsaw away, computer! Put away the chainsaw! Uh
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's terrifying.